last week we started this teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, really a sermon um, about the kingdom of God. So we, we looked at this idea of how Jesus throughout his whole ministry, especially in the, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew picks up on this theme of kingdom and uh, Jesus sets out this, this, this whole sermon on the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like. And not only is he talking about the kingdom of God, he's been demonstrating the kingdom of God. So we saw at the time that um, we see at the end of chapter four, the time that he uh, sits down to preach this sermon, uh, he's been going around healing the sick people. He's been casting out demons. So he's showing that, that he has authority over the physical world. He has authority over the spiritual world. Um, so he's, we looked at this idea of how he's displaying the kingdom of God and then he declares the kingdom of God. Um, so the kingdom, this idea, this theme, we need to have an understanding of that. So it's really God's reign. So uh, not, not the reign outside, but reign, R-E-I-G-N. Is that how you spell reign? Um, so, so what that looks like now is God uh, ruling in the hearts of his people. And then uh, in, in a future time will come when Jesus will return and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be, that will be his completed kingdom, and we will be in that kingdom with him. So this is why Jesus preaches the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, because it's good news that, that, that all the pain and all the suffering and all the brokenness, that's all being renewed, that's all being healed, that's all being restored. And so he invites us to walk in this way of the kingdom with him. He's making all things new. I don't know if you ever think about that. God is making all things new. Isn't that amazing? All the struggles and all the things that, that, that we don't like and all the things that, that hurt us. He's making all things new. Amazing. Um, last week, we looked at three particular things that speak really to the, the authority of Jesus. So firstly, we saw that, that he went up the mountain. This is where he preaches this sermon. He goes up the mountain. And that was really a symbol of the fact that, that, that he is our savior, right? He can ascend the hill of the Lord. He's the, he is the new and better fulfillment of Moses. He's our savior. He sat down. He's the posture of a teacher, but he's the posture of the one who sits at the right, right hand of God. He has authority. He's our teacher who has authority. And then he opened his mouth. That means it's a way of saying in the Bible that he has something important to say. So this savior who is our teacher has something important to say to us. And so we need to pay attention. That's, that's kind of a recap of last week. Um, I'm gonna, uh, we're we're going to jump into the start, this first section of the, the Sermon on the Mount uh, called the Beatitudes, and I'll explain that in a second. So I'm going to kind of do the first half of that. And then next Sunday, uh, next Sunday, um, Chris Lewis, who's the pastor of Foothill Church in LA, remember the, the team we had over from, from Foothill Church? The, pastor, the, lead, the lead pastor of that church, Chris, and his wife, Michelle, they're coming to worship with us next Sunday, and Chris is going to do the second, uh, the second half of the Beatitudes. So, uh, I mean, next week's sermon will be undoubtedly better than this week's sermon, um, uh, but it'll be great to have those guys along on St. Paddy's Day as well. I think they're, I, he was like, oh, I can't wait to be uh, in Belfast on St. Paddy's Day, and I was like, it's not that great, mate. <laughs> It's, it's probably better in America, to be fair. Um, uh, yeah, no one does St. Patrick's Day better like Americans wearing kilts. I don't get that, but they do it. So there you go. Um, let me pray for us and ask God's help, and then we'll jump into the, to this sermon. Uh, Father, uh, we just want to recognize that we need your help. That we, um, we come with all our baggage and all our distractions. Uh, we come with all our hurts and all our pains and all our worries. And all those things would distract from us and, and would, would take away from us hearing you clearly. Um, so help us, Lord, to hear your voice this morning. Um, help me not to say anything that isn't of you. 
Uh, Lord, speak to your church. May we be empowered and renewed and restored and, and, and brought back into full relationship with you this morning. Amen. Uh, so I, wonder, I want to start with this question. I, I like to start with a question, right? And the question today is, what do you think of when you hear the word blessed? First thing that pops into your head. So for me, I think of, uh, I think of I'm really blessed when... Uh, I've got my health. I'm really blessed when I've got money in the bank. This tends to be these material things that we think of a blessing, isn't it? We think of money. We think of health. We think of family. We think of good experiences. We think of blessing of when life is going pretty well. That's when we say we're blessed. Oh, we're blessed. Oh, life is going pretty well. Now, those things are blessings. Every good thing in our life is from God as a gift, and they are blessings in that sense, and we should be thankful for those things. So if you have your health, you should be thankful for that. If you're able to have food on the table, you should be thankful for that. Every good thing comes from God, and those things are blessings. But I'm guessing what you don't think about when you think of uh, uh, the word blessing is, uh, is being poor, is mourning, is uh, humility, is... Uh, uh, thirst and hunger, being persecuted. But yet, these are the things that Jesus says are blessings. He starts his sermon with these very things. He's describing the kingdom of God, what it's like, and he says that in the kingdom of God, being blessed isn't having loads of money, it isn't having a great family around you, it isn't having, it isn't having your health. Why does he say these things? Well, remember we saw last week that Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not the same in this world. When he's arrested and he's, being, he's on trial uh, and he's asked to give account for himself and he says, my kingdom is not of this world and if it were, then my disciples would actually fight so that I wouldn't be arrested, but they didn't. My kingdom is not of this world. God's ways are not our ways. And so in this whole Sermon on the Mount that we're really starting today, I guess, um, Jesus introduces this set of like back to front, upside down values. So we read these things and we're like, hold on a second. This is not the way of the world at all. And that's kind of the point. It's the kingdom of heaven. But there's a sense, I think, in which we have, um, there's a sense in which we have a sense of blessing that's kind of weakened, uh, anemic. Uh, it's lesser than what blessing really is. So we've reduced God's blessing to what the world would call blessing. And when we do that, we miss out on what actual blessing is. We miss out on what God has for us. We've reduced blessing to worldly prosperity, haven't we? And so we, we limit what God has to offer us. I'll only be blessed. I'll only be happy if I have that job and my family's safe and secure. And God's like, you're missing the point. There's so much more to this thing. So the question we want to answer this morning, and I'm guessing that, that, that Chris is going to bring in an answer to this question as well from the, the second half of the Beatitudes is, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? So Jesus, teaching on the kingdom, gives us these eight statements of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And they're called the Beatitudes. And the reason they're called the Beatitudes is this Latin word that literally means blessing. But 
as we've seen, our, our definition of blessing isn't necessarily what Jesus has in mind, and that's what we're going to unpack today. The word blessing actually means as well, it can mean happy, it can mean content, it can mean fulfilled. And so a greater way, a more probably better way of understanding blessing, rather than stuff we get, blessing isn't just about stuff we get, blessing, according to Jesus, is about fulfillment, it's about flourishing. And we want to look at this idea of flourishing, what does it mean to flourish? As a human being, what does it mean to do well? What does it mean to live in the way that God has created human beings to to be? This kind of teaching is really popular at the time that Jesus sits down in the mountainside to teach. So um, it was one of the common questions at the time. It was like, how can I get the good life? Everyone wanted to know what, what human flourishing looked like. So all the Greek philosophers at the time, that was one of their main questions. What does the good life look like? How can I flourish as a human being? How can I do well? And just like today, everyone had an answer of what the best way to live is, right? And Jesus says, well, if you want to know what the good life is, listen to what I'm about to tell you. If you want to know what the good life is, if you want to know how to flourish, listen to me. So the Beatitudes, these statements of blessing, are an answer to the question of human happiness. They're an answer to a question of human flourishing. If you really want to flourish, if you really want to be human in the fullest sense, in the truest sense, in the way that God has created you to be human, then this is the way to live. But remember, the kingdom of God has two elements to it, doesn't it? It has a a now and it has a not yet. It has its arrived but not yet arrived. And so we live in the kingdom of God now, yes we do, but There's a sense in which we haven't yet entered into the fullness of the kingdom. The kingdom has come with Jesus, but it hasn't yet been fulfilled. So we need to think of these Beatitudes as as blessing and flourishing, human flourishing now. How do we flourish in this life? But also, how are we going to be flourished? How are we going to be fulfilled in the kingdom that is to come? Uh, One of the authors I've been reading about, a teacher who, who writes in this, and he says this. His name is Jonathan Pennington, which is a really uh, special name, Pennington. Uh, it tickled me. Um, this is what he says. The Beatitudes are an invitation into a way of being in the world that will result in our true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Let me say that again so you can make a note of it if you're making notes because I think it's, it's a really good summary of what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are an invitation into a way of being in the world that will result in our true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. But why would Jesus start here? Why would he if, he, if he's if he's if he's made a statement about who he is, he's the savior, he has authority, he's our teacher, he's got something important to say. Why would he why would he open this sermon with just a list of statements? Where's his where's his funny anecdote, right? Where's his where's his hook to draw you in? Where where's where, where, where is the analogies? And he does get to those later on. But, but why does he not start that way? He starts with just a list of statements. I think the answer is grace. He wants to show us grace. He wants to show us that the kingdom of God is about grace, that there's nothing we can do to deserve this stuff. There's nothing we can do to earn this stuff. He could have started with a list of do's and don'ts, couldn't he? He could have said, um, all right, this is what the kingdom is, and you better not do that, and you better do this. But he doesn't. He starts with 
how good it is to live in the kingdom. He starts with how, uh, how, how blessed we are to have the kingdom. He starts with, listen, if you're in the kingdom, you receive all these blessings. Blessing, 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 blessing. Flourishing, 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 flourishing. And so there's this temptation for us to read these Beatitudes in a kind of a, um, you know, like a, like a, hopefully you understand what I mean by this, by a venom machine kind of way. Like you put the right behavior in and you get the right blessing out. That's how we treat our Christian life most of the time, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves. Lord, I'm going to do this. Listen, you ever pray that prayer? Lord, if you help me out of this, I'm going to do this. You ever pray that prayer? Or I'm going to do this because I know that, well, if I'm, if I'm a peacemaker, then I'm going to be called the sons of God. But that's not what Jesus is saying. We don't, we don't do a certain thing and get a certain outcome. That's not how the kingdom works. That's not how grace works. The Beatitudes are not a way of earning God's blessing. These statements, these statements of flourishing, and in fact the whole sermon, they show us two things. They show us firstly that our own efforts, in our own efforts we can't clean ourselves up so we can enter the kingdom of God. It's not a case of obeying these things so we can be saved. And the second thing it teaches us is that when we are saved, when we are in the kingdom, when we've accepted Jesus, this is how we should live. This is what the life of someone whose heart has been transformed by Jesus will look like. In other words, the Beatitudes don't produce our salvation, but they are and should be a product of our salvation. Someone said the Beatitudes send us to Christ to be justified. That is, the Beatitudes send us to Christ. They show us of our need of Jesus. And they send us to Jesus so that we could be justified. That is, made right before God. And then, send us back, and then Christ sends us back to the Beatitudes to be sanctified. That is, to show us how to live like him. So we look at the Beatitudes and we realize we need Jesus. And we receive Jesus. And then Jesus is like, go back to the Beatitudes and live this way. This two-way relationship. Martin Luther um, said, that, said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has shown us the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian in a state of grace. We can't leave, live these things without the grace of God. We can't live these things out without the Spirit of God. In other words, we need to understand right from the start that these things are characteristics of, the, of people who love and follow Jesus. The Beatitudes show us the blessing of human flourishing that God in his grace lavishes. I love that word, lavish. He lavishes on us here in Jesus. Everyone with me so far? I feel like that's been a lot of information. Quick recap. The Beatitudes, if I had to sum this up in one sentence, this is what I would say. The Beatitudes, the flourishings, are an invitation for the people of God to live in a way that leads to our flourishing in this life and in the fulfilled kingdom of heaven because of the grace that God has shown us through Jesus. Let me say that, say that again, and this is kind of the working definition that we're gonna have as we go through the first four of these today. The Beatitudes are an invitation for the people of God to live in a way that leads to our flourishing in this life and in the fulfilled kingdom of heaven because of the grace that God has shown us through Jesus. So let's look at them in some detail. Um, I want to get into them kind of one by one, the first four of them today. Um, first thing we need to remember is that they, they, cannot, they all need to be taken together. 
as well. So um, you, you, you might have read the, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians where uh, it's, not, it's not just like that a Christian has one of these characteristics. It's not like, oh, I'm a Christian, so I'll have joy. Or I, I can pick, uh, you know, um, uh, selflessness or I can pick uh, long-suffering. No, it's like this is a, a picture of what the, the, the Christian life looks like. All of these things. Together, these statements, these first 12 verses, make up the way of kingdom living. And so we're going to look at the first four this week, and then Chris will do the next uh, four or five, depending on which way you read it next week. So remember our question from the start? What does it mean to be blessed? Okay, I think it should be on the screen. There you go. Um, That's our first lesson. In the kingdom of God, to be blessed is to know our need of God. Look at verse three with me. Keep your Bibles open, because we're going to just keep dipping back into these things. Verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I kind of think about the wrong things. So, firstly, we need to rule out that Jesus isn't talking about material poverty. It's not like if you make yourself, if you you know sell all your uh, you know belongings and make yourself homeless, that you're gonna be you're gonna be blessed. You're gonna receive the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about financial or material poverty. Nor is he talking about being down in yourself all the time, right? This isn't about, I've got such a low self-esteem, I'm I'm so worthless, I'm a screw-up, like I mess up all the time. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about walking around having no confidence and being miserable. It's spiritual poverty is not thinking that you have no worth, but it's knowing that you're not worthy, And there's a difference there. It's not thinking that you have no worth. You do have value. You're created in the image of God. Jesus thought you had enough value that he came and died for you. But it is knowing that you're not worthy. Uh, Someone uh, confronted a preacher one time and said to him, uh, when he was actually preaching on this very passage and said, afterwards said, isn't, isn't Christianity just a crutch? Isn't it just a crutch for people that can't make it on their own? And his answer was, yes. That's exactly what Christianity is. The gospel is a crutch because we can't make it on our own. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And we don't like to think that we need a crutch, do we? Because only injured people need crutches. Only lame or crippled people need crutches, right? And we don't like to think of ourselves in this way. We don't like to think that we can't make it on our own. I certainly don't. I hate thinking that about myself. But if we're ever going to enter the kingdom, then we need to realize that we have nothing to offer. There's nothing we can do. Uh, Jesus said in in Mark 2, um, he says, Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick do. So I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's us. It's it's the people that realize that, that they're sick that enter the kingdom. It's the people that realize that that, that they need God. Being poor in spirit is just simply this, realizing our need of God. Realizing that we have nothing. Realizing that, that we can never save ourselves. Realizing that no matter how hard we try, no matter how well we live, no matter how righteous we live, no matter how honest we are, no matter how hardworking we are, no matter how generous we are, no matter how forgiven we are, no matter how much we clean ourselves up, there's nothing we can ever do to make ourselves right with God. And this is the, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the story of the gospel. 
We bring absolutely nothing to the table. There's nothing we can bring to the table except we bring filthy rags. We bring our brokenness. We bring our emptiness. We bring our guilt and our shame. That's all we have to offer. And it's only when we realize our brokenness that we turn to Jesus. And this is the brilliant bit. Jesus meets us just where we are. If you're a Christian this morning, that's exactly what happened to you. At one point in your life, you realized, I have nothing. And Jesus met you right where you are. And he said, I am everything. And and this is why Jesus starts here. He starts here because no one can be a Christian. You can't even enter into Christianity. You can't even become a Christian unless you realize your spiritual poverty. And you've maybe never, never given up that language, but that's essentially what happened. You'll never turn to Jesus unless you realize that you need him. You'll never turn to Jesus unless you realize that you're spiritually poor. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then that's, what's, that's what needs to happen for you to become a Christian. You need to realize that, that, that you have nothing and Jesus is everything. You need to realize your spiritual poor. But he starts with this not just because that's how you become a Christian. We, we become Christians in spiritual poverty, but it's also how we live as Christians. We live, we live this way. We live in a constant state of spiritual poverty. That's why Jesus said, goes on to say that those who are spiritually poor receive the kingdom of heaven, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is why we're blessed. The poor in spirit are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is theirs, because they've realized that they have nothing, and Jesus has everything, and so they receive everything. Jesus makes it clear uh, from the very, very outset. He, it's, it's a bit like him saying, listen, everything I'm about to say after this, you're never going to be able to live any of this. It's never going to make any sense to you unless you realize that you can't do it. We can't, we can't hope to live the Christian life in our own efforts. We daily need to return to Jesus and ask for help and say, I need your help, Lord. I'm empty here. I've got nothing. How many of you in the last two weeks have felt that way? I have. I felt it this morning. This is why we sing that song, I need thee every hour. Because it's true. This is the way to live in the kingdom of God. How many times do we just try to get through in our own strength, right? I can, oh yeah, I'm just going to muddle through. I'm okay. Like I'll get there. But you know what happens when we do that? We either go one of two ways, depending probably on your personality type. Firstly, you either get proud and think, yeah, I'm, do, I'm doing an okay job. I can manage this on my own. I'm, do, I'm doing it. That's my temptation personally. Or secondly, we get beat down and discouraged and we fall into depression and we can't get out of bed in the morning because everything is too much for us. And in both those cases, we've forgotten that we need Jesus. And the answer to both of those, depending on where you are, depending on which one of those temptations is yours, The answer is, come to Jesus. When we're proud and we think we can handle everything on our own, come to Jesus and tell him that we need him. Jesus, I'm sorry that I'm trying to do this all on my own. I need you. When we're discouraged and down and you you don't want to go out of bed in the morning and everything just seems like too much to handle, Jesus, I need you. I just want to come to you and admit that I have nothing, but you are everything. In Matthew 11, later on after this, Jesus says this, he says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out? Come to me. If you're carrying a heavy burden, then then I'm going to give you rest. Learn from me. 
I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your soul in me. My burden is light and my load is easy. In other words, stop trying to do it all on your own because you're just getting proud or you're, you're falling into despair. But learn from me. Take on my way. This is the invitation that Jesus has given us this morning. All those things that you think you can't handle. So are you proud? Do you think you can do everything on your own? Or are you overwhelmed by life? Do you not want to get out of bed in the morning because it's too much? Jesus says, come to me. Realize you're poor in spirit. Because the truth is you are poor in spirit, whether you know it or not. The key is we need to realize that we're poor in spirit and just come to Jesus. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul doesn't say, listen, well, I can do all things because I'm Paul. That's what I say to me. I say, I can do this. I can handle this. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The Christian life is a life of spiritual poverty. It's how we become Christians and it's how we live as Christians. The way of the kingdom of heaven is the way of spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who realize their need of God. This is how we flourish. And I've gone through over half my time in the first one. (laughs) But maybe the most important one, and I want to come back to that later. So what then of the next one? Our second lesson this morning is to be blessed, to flourish, is to have sorrow over our sin. Oh, that's horrible language, isn't it? (laughs) It's in the Bible. Let's look at it. Look at verse 4. He says, Jesus says, Blessed are those, flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. According to Jesus, what follows our our realizing our need of him is a sense of mourning, a sense of grief. Because how could we do do anything else? Uh, Mournfulness naturally follows spiritual poverty. We realize, actually, I have nothing here. What What am I doing? We don't like to mourn, do we? We don't even like to think about mourning. Mourning, uh... Morning isn't good for us. Morning doesn't make us happy. In fact, if you translate the word blessed for happy, Jesus is saying, happy are those who are sad. See, everything in life, we're, we're brought up, and I'm not talking about your parents, I'm talking about the world in general. We're brought up saying that, 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 that we shouldn't mourn, that, that actually fulfillment and flourishing comes from seeking happiness and pleasure, right? So we look for the next experience. We, we, we want a better house, we want more money. We want a better relationship. We want a better holiday. We want experiences that are going to make us happy. And when that's done, we go, oh, what's on the next one? That's why people rack up thousands of pounds worth of debt, isn't it? Just trying to find happiness and fulfillment. But Jesus actually says, remember the upside down version of his kingdom compared to the world? He says that those who mourn are the ones who are flourishing. Those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted. And he's not saying that Christians are to be sad and, and down in the dumps all the time, although to some of you wonder, like looking at some Christians sometimes, wouldn't you? Not anyone in this church, of course. We're all great. Christians aren't to be moaning all the time, complaining all the time. That's not what mourning is. Mourning isn't moaning. On an individual level, what this looks like is grief over our sin. It's, it's, it's realizing, it's actually mourning the fact that, that we reject God on a daily basis and going, why did I do that? I rejected God in that moment. What is that all about? It's a kind of sorrow and remorse over the, the depths of our own depravity. 
And the more we're exposed to God and the more we're exposed to God's goodness, the more we feel that. Isaiah gives us a good example of this. So the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, right? Um, he, uh, God gives him this vision. And in this vision, you can read this in Isaiah chapter 6. It's worth a read. And um, in this vision, he, uh, God, God shows him essentially under the throne room of heaven, right? If you've ever read this, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And uh, he sees God on the throne. Uh, he sees these angels and cherubim flying around. And even the angels have to cover their faces because they can't look at the holiness and purity of God. And they're, they're, they're covering their faces and they're flying around. They're singing, holy, holy, holy. And what's Isaiah's response to that? He's not like, wow, God, you are so amazing. His response is, woe is me. You see, he, he, his response is someone who's, who's been going after purity on their own strength and then sees the light of God and realizes that he can never achieve that, realizes that God is so different. Paul has a similar response in Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, Paul knows he's sinful. He can never achieve purity on his own strength, even the apostle Paul. And this is what, uh, this is what um, Lent is all about. It's what we looked at on last Wednesday, if you're around on Wednesday night. We reflect on our own sin and our own uh, mortality. We reflect on our own limits so that the grace of God is magnified. We don't like to think about all this stuff, do we? We, we, we like to think that we're all basically okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm not as bad as that guy. But Jesus says the way to flourish is through being sorrowful for your sin. So I wonder how often do we do this? This is why, you know, a lot of people will say to me, ah, oh, you know, you shouldn't do Lent, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I think it's a good thing because we're so out of the way of thinking about the fact that, that we mess up. We're so out of the way of thinking about the fact that, that we reject God through our actions every day. How often do we say sorry to God and mean it? But look at what Jesus says. He says, there's blessing here. He says, those who mourn will be comforted. When we get to the end of ourselves and we realize we have nothing, we're spiritually poor, we grieve over the ways that we reject God, but then comfort comes. God, who is perfect and altogether holy, altogether separate and, and different from us, becomes one of us so that he can join himself to us. What better comfort can, could we have than that? All the things that, that keep us away from God have been removed. Jesus took all of that, uh, that on himself, right? The Bible actually says that, that he took his righteousness, his goodness, his right standing before God, and he put it on us like a cloak. So when I stand before God now, me, sinful me, God sees Jesus' righteousness. Isn't that incredible? That's the comfort for those who mourn. That's why those who mourn are blessed. The comfort of the kingdom of God is that if you're a Christian and you're in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what the Bible tells us. So stop feeling guilty. Mourn for your sin. Realize your poor in spirit. And then remember that you have the righteousness of Jesus on you. It's all done and paid for. So the way of flourishing is to realize our need for God, to have sorrow for our sin. And then the third lesson, to be blessed is to walk in humility. Look at verse five with me. Blessed or flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, what do you think of when you 
hear the word meek, or if you think of a meek person, what do we, what do we tend to think of? I would say that it's probably someone who, uh, do you know that phrase, somebody that wouldn't say boo to a goose? Do you know that phrase? <laughs> Steph's never heard that before. It's someone who, who is scared to voice their opinion, someone who's shy, someone who's timid, someone who's a pushover, someone who, who, who is a doormat. That's kind of what we think of, right? But this isn't what Jesus is talking about. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is this combination of patience, gentleness, and a complete submission to the will of God. And we're going to build on that. Meekness is learning to be self-controlled instead of needing to be in control. Meekness is opening your heart instead of clenching your fist. Meekness is the firm resolve that it's always better to suffer than to sin. The, the, the culture that Jesus is preaching into, the Greek philosophy and culture of the time, uh, they hated meekness. Why do you think all their statues are big, muscular guys like me? Said, Thanks, guys. Like, oh, yeah, they are like you. There was no place for meekness in their society. For them, it was about weakness. And it's the same for us in our society, right? Isn't it? Think about it. We're born into a system which forces us to compete with every other human being on the planet. So, in primary school, at least in my primary school, I don't know what it's like now, you're graded into classes compared to your ability. Then when you're 11 years old, you have to compete for a place in the best secondary school. Then you have to compete for places in the best universities. Then you have to compete for the best jobs. It's a competitive world out there, and if you're not competing, you're not going to make it. The housing market is competitive. Then if you have kids of your own someday, you have to compete to get them into the best nursery school so they can continue that cycle. On and on and on it goes. Charlie Chaplin, um, he said this. Uh, I mean, very serious guy, actually. And he said this. This is a ruthless world, and one must be ruthless to cope with it. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus didn't say... Here, you're going to flourish when you try your best uh, by any means to get an advantage over, to, over your fellow human beings in order to gain as much as possible. Jesus didn't say that. He says, be meek. He says, walk gently on the earth. He says, put other people before yourself. This is the way of the kingdom. And those who are in the kingdom are going to inherit the earth anyway. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think when Jesus said, taught us to be weak, he taught, uh, taught, taught us one of the things that is most counter to human nature and most counter even to today, today's culture. I find it hard when I'm driving to be meek. I've got to be honest with you. you ever find, is anyone else like that? Because when I'm driving then, I think that I should be at the, the first at the red light. I, I should be in front of everyone else. No one should come out in front of me. That's when God highlights my own lack of meekness. But yet Paul says, I'm sure you can think of your own examples for your own life. Paul says in Colossians 3, he says that meekness is one of the, the great virtues of the Christian. See, the world doesn't have a place for meekness, but the Bible does. The kingdom of God does. Numbers 12 uh, tells us, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm pointing out that it's nothing to do with your personality type. Uh, Moses, Numbers 12 tells us that Moses was the meekest man to ever walk the face of the earth. Now, at that time, and if you know anything about Moses, you know that he wasn't born meek, right? He killed somebody he disagreed with. He interfered with other people's arguments. He wanted to be in control. He freaked out when he wasn't in control. But yet, he was the meekest person on the earth. 
Meekness isn't to do with your personality. You can be soft or you can be loud. You can be an introvert or you can be an extrovert. It's not a personality trait. It's a character. Think of Paul. Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And um, there were some serious, serious issues in the church of Corinth. The church was in turmoil. There was rebellion. There was incest. There was uh, people stealing. The poor were being ignored. There was all kinds of things going on. You know what Paul says? He doesn't go down there and says, I'm going to come on a big stick and beat you around the head until you get it right. He doesn't. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says uh, that he pleaded with them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Meekness is the attitude with which the followers of Jesus approach the world. Meekness is the attitude with which the followers of Jesus approach the world. So we need to ask ourselves, when you're confronted, when you're wronged, when you're getting all hot and bothered, when you feel uh, that, that, that whatever's happened to you is, is an injustice, when you feel like I'm definitely right and they're definitely wrong, what does meekness look like? In other words, whose sin, whose sin upsets you more? Other people's or your own? It's not about being a doormat. It's about being dignified, even in the face of confusion and anxiety and injustice. When we're confronted and we're in a disagreement or somebody is wrongfully angry with us, the way to be like Jesus in that situation is to be meek. The way to be like Jesus is to be meek. We already read this verse in Matthew 11, and guess what? I'm going to come back to it again later on. Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Being like Jesus isn't just about the things we say, it's about the things we do. And then look what happens. Look what Jesus promises when those who walk in this way. He says, blessed are the meek, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole wide world. They shall inherit the earth. The meek of all people. The world tells us that, that whoever stri- whoever's the strongest will get the most. That's what the world tells us. And that's, what we're, we're brought, that's the system we're brought into. Whoever's the strongest is going to get the most. But Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. What does this mean? This means that, well, the Jews, they were, they were preoccupied with this idea of, of the promised land. Um, and so when the, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, and other people in, who were Jews, they were waiting for this Messiah to come. And in their interpretation, they were waiting for the Messiah to come and kick the Romans out so that they could have the land of Israel back, so they could have the promised land back again. They were preoccupied with a tiny portion of land. But Jesus has a much bigger vision in mind. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. If you've got a Bible, turn, take a second turn to Revelation 21. This is what, um, so in Revelation, just quickly, John, friend of Jesus, disciple, uh, writes uh, some of the New Testament, pastor, old, old man at this point. God gives him a vision of, of the fulfillment of the kingdom, gives him a vision of things that are not yet come, things that will come to pass. And this is what, part of this, this is what we see. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the church, by the way. 
We are the new Jerusalem. We're being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God is making a new heaven and a new earth. This is why we have in our, in our vision statement as a church, joining God in the renewal of all things. This is what the church is about. We're living in the kingdom. God is renewing all things and we're, we're just along for the ride. We're his tools as he works that vision out. And in this new creation, in this new heaven, in this new earth, we're going we're gonna to dwell with God. God is going to dwell with us. He, we will be with him and he will be with us. God himself will be with them as their God. This is what it means to inherit the earth. God is renewing all of creation so that we can dwell with him. We're going to reign and rule over creation the way that we were intended to be before we mess it up. And so my point is, if we know that everything is guaranteed to us, if we know that that future is ours, then we don't need to worry about striving to get ahead in this life. We need to remember this. The meek don't always think they need more or deserve more because they have confidence that they already have everything in Christ. Let me say that again. The meek don't always think they need more or deserve more because they have confidence that they already have everything in Christ. So we don't need to be jealous of what other people have. We have everything in Christ. We don't need to wish our lives were better or easier because we have everything in Christ. We don't have to try and get every advantage over other people because we have everything in Christ. This is why Paul says, I have nothing, but yet I possess everything. Paul walked around like a, like a, like he was like a homeless person. He had nothing, but yet he says, I have everything. This is what meekness is. This is the way that we walk. This is the way we live. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. We're blessed to flourish is to know our need for God. That's how we enter the kingdom. It's how we live in the kingdom. Spiritual poverty. To be blessed is to have sorrow over our sin. It's, and our comfort is the gospel of Jesus. To be blessed is to walk in humility. We have everything in Christ. And our final lesson then. To be blessed is to depend on God's goodness. To be blessed is to depend on God's goodness. I think I have it, yeah. Look at verse five. Jesus says, blessed or flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What's the hungriest you've ever been? I get pretty hungry every Sunday because I tend to not eat. I get up early on a Sunday morning, I tend to not eat, and then it gets to like one o'clock when we're done here, and then I realize, oh my goodness, I'm very hungry. But have you ever missed a meal? Most of us have probably missed a meal. What about a day? Have you ever missed like a day of food? That's pretty bad. Maybe you've gone longer than that. Maybe you've had to fast for an operation or something, or, or maybe you've had no money and you couldn't buy food. By the way, if that's the case, then don't, don't do that. Come and tell us, and, and we, want, <laughs> we want to buy you food. But there's nothing like hunger. There's nothing like deep, deep hunger to remind us just how, uh, just how unable we are to keep sustaining ourselves, right? 
That's why God makes us that we need to have food. So that three times a day we're reminded, God, we, we can't survive on our own. And this is what, this is, this is what Jesus says. He says that, that, that we are to crave the goodness of God. That's what righteousness means. That we're to crave that goodness of God the way that we crave uh, food and water. Jesus uses hunger and thirst uh, to describe the way that we should desire his goodness. Just as we need food and water to survive physically, we need, uh, we need God's goodness to survive and sustain us spiritually. Jesus is saying that the righteousness of God is as vital to us as food and water. It's not a question of a religion that you can kind of dip in and out of, right? It's not just a wee encouraging word every now and again uh, that makes us feel good. It's about hunger and thirst. It's about dependence on Jesus. It's about depending on the goodness of God. Sometimes you, sometimes you ever think, I'm too tired to go to church. Well, let me tell you, that's like saying, I'm, I'm going to skip a meal because I'm too hungry. I'm not, I'm not going to open my Bible. I'm just too tired. I'm too, well, that's like saying, I'm too hungry. Why would I eat something? It doesn't make sense. Jesus is saying we need to realize our need of him and allow him to satisfy that need. St. Augustine, 4th century, he said this. Um, he said, uh, Thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. In other words, we're restless until we rest in God. It's about realizing that nothing but Jesus can satisfy us. Not just so that we can enter the kingdom, but that's the way to live in the kingdom. Nothing but Jesus can satisfy we're all born with longing and restlessness, right? We're all born to desire things. It's a trait of the human heart because we're made in the image of God. We're made with, if you like, the footprint of eternity in us. And we long for that. Every human being longs for that. Every human being is searching for something. But the problem is, even us as Christians, we try to satisfy it with other things. We look in all the wrong places. We try to satisfy it with, with, with holidays and experiences, with careers and relationships and with money. And, and whatever you put in there, sex, sport, whatever it might be, there's nothing wrong with those things as long as we enjoy them in the right way. They're not the thing that's going to satisfy us. And so the longing remains. Maybe, and maybe you're like that this morning. Maybe you're here and, 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 and you have this feeling of restlessness. Maybe you feel completely unsatisfied in your life. Maybe you're, you feel like you're longing for something. You're restless. You don't know what it is. Maybe no matter where you look, the grass is always greener. That field looks pretty good. That field looks pretty good. That field looks pretty good. As I say this, I'm starting to get hungry, just so you know where I'm at. If that's you this morning, don't ignore that feeling because that's the Holy Spirit inviting you and calling you to find your rest in God and to be satisfied in Jesus. And this isn't, what I'm, this isn't just for people who aren't Christians. This is for us as Christians. We need to do this over and over and over again. Be satisfied in Jesus. The mantra of this church is we have nothing to offer but Jesus. But in offering you Jesus, we offer you everything. Only Christ can satisfy. That's what the old hymn says, isn't it? None but Christ can satisfy. I want to point out one, one thing uh, before, we, before we finish. Uh, there's a flow. It's Jesus, right? So he gets it right. It's not like this is a first draft. This is Jesus' sermon. 
And there's a flow to the way he lays these things out. This is how it goes. And, and Chris is going to probably pick up on this next Sunday as well. It goes like this. We realize we're empty. We realize our need for God. And then we mourn for our sin. We mourn for our separation from God. We realize, I have nothing here. And, and, and it causes us to mourn. And it produces this humility within us. And here is Jesus saying, I'm the answer to all these things. You're hungry and you're thirsty and I can satisfy those things. And when you come to me, I will satisfy those things. Uh, one of my um, favorite passages of scripture, I think I probably, I do say that every week, don't I? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is this, from Isaiah 55. And Isaiah the prophet, you know, writing here to, to the people of Israel uh, a couple of, uh, 3,000 years ago almost. And, and, and then it's so relevant to Jesus as well. He says this, why, do you hear this, this is God speaking to us this morning. This is not my words, this is God's word. And he says this, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Why are you looking in all the wrong places? Why are you striving for things that aren't going to make you happy? Why are you, you getting the things that are only going to satisfy you for a wee while? Why do you think you're so uh, upset with the way your life is? Why do you think you're so unsatisfied? Jesus says... I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, then you're never going to be hungry again. And Jesus says, I am the living water. If you drink of me, you're never going to thirst again. That's what Jesus says. And I think so often we think, and, and, and listen, I'm speaking to myself as well. You've no idea how much I'm speaking to myself. I think so often we think that the grass is always greener on the other side because we're looking in all the wrong fields. Because our lives aren't devoted to God's goodness. Because we haven't, it hasn't sunk into our hearts that only God's goodness is going to satisfy us. So we pursue other things more than we pursue God. And we're always left feeling hungry and thirsty and empty. And Jesus says, come to me and I will fill you up. I will give you rest. This is the way of the kingdom. All these things are just found in Jesus. The only reason we can be poor in spirit is because he made himself poor in spirit. All of God became a tiny helpless baby. The Bible says that he emptied himself. He became nothing. The only reason we can mourn for our sin is because Jesus mourned for our sin. It grieved him to see his people separated from himself. And so he steps in and he heals our separation from God. The only reason we can be meek is because Jesus is meek. The cross, the cross of Jesus that we're going to celebrate as we take communion, that, that's the ultimate act of meekness. That's the ultimate act of putting other people's needs before yourself. So whenever you feel like the big man for letting someone out in front of you in the traffic, Andrew, remember what Jesus did on the cross. That's really what it looks like to be selfless. That's really what it means to walk in humility. So can I just encourage us to to hunger and thirst for God's goodness. None but Christ can satisfy. And through his death and resurrection, he made a way for us to receive his goodness. He made a way for us to enter his kingdom and walk in his kingdom and receive the fullness of his kingdom. It's in Jesus that we have the kingdom of God. It's in Jesus that we're comforted 
It's in Jesus that we inherit the earth and it's in Jesus that we're satisfied. Let me pray for us.